Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. As more Americans in 2023 revisit their relationship with work and how it fits into our lives, we'll take a holistic look at our relationships with our jobs first with Derek Thompson of The Atlantic, who recently compiled a series of his articles on work, money, meaning, and identity. We'll also look at the status of labor movements nationwide with Wayne State University professor Merrick Masters and talk to University of Michigan graduate student Jared Eno about why graduate employees are striking at U of M. That's next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Detroit Today is supported by the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History. Good day and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Nick Austin filling in for Stephen Henderson. What is the most important activity you do in your day-to-day life? What drives you on any given day? Many amongst us would say family, friends, or particular rituals. But increasingly, one of the most important aspects of American life is work. It occupies most of our time. For many, it shapes how we act with others. It gives us a lens in which to view the world. It can be the identity through which we even define ourselves. But work has changed a lot over the last century. And today, some people devote their lives to work as if it were their religion. They commit all their time, energy, and beliefs, even their identity, wrapping their significance and self-worth into the things they are paid to do. Writer Derek Thompson calls this phenomenon workism, and he's skeptical about its benefits. A little later in the hour, we're going to discuss a different aspect of work. We're going to explore where the labor movement is today and get into the politics of the labor dispute between the University of Michigan Ann Arbor and its graduate students. But before we get there, we want to talk more about work and how it's changed over time, as well as how workism operates in our lives. And we have Derek Thompson here, the man behind that phrase, to discuss it. Derek Thompson is a staff writer at The Atlantic and the author of the Work in Progress newsletter. He's also recently published a collection of his articles in a book titled On Work, Money, Meaning, Identity. Derek, welcome to Detroit Today. It's great to be here. Thank you. So, Derek, since you're the man who's looked at work so much that you can compile a whole book full of articles on it, (laughs) let us know what is work today and how has it changed over the last few centuries? I start this book off with a six-word history of work for the last maybe few thousand or several hundred thousand years. And that six-word history is from jobs to careers to callings. And what that six-word history means is that for the vast majority of our time as a species, our jobs had no sense of internal progress within them. Most human beings have been subsistence farmers through the species history. And that means that they did what their parents did and their parents did what their parents did. And so the concept of work really had no possibility of self-actualization or discovery in terms of finding your dream job. There was really just one job to do and it was the job of staying alive. Sometime in the 19th century, the invention of the train and the telegraph 
allowed young companies to be able to manage products and services and employees across an enormous continent, whether it was America or Europe. And that work required that they invent this new middle category of middle managers. It is actually a very strange fact of history that the concept of the middle manager is basically an invention of the middle to late 1800s. Well, the invention of the middle manager doesn't seem like it's a very interesting wrinkle in the history of work, but actually this is a part of the invention of the modern corporation where people sort of move into a job in their 20s in the mailroom or starting something that's quite boring, work their way up to middle manager or manager to award a series of acronyms, SVP, CEO. That's the concept of a career, and the word career had to be invented from the French word carrière, which referred to a carriage, something that moves forward. So the concept of work is something that moves forward in our lives toward uh, the uh, sort of this, this ascent toward a, a scarce set of acronyms. That is a new idea. But today, as you've already referenced in your open, I think that many people look to work not just to have a sense of forward progress in their lives, not just to keep themselves alive, not just to busy their days, but to define their lives, to be this centerpiece of identity. And that idea is what I call workism. So let's explore workism and how it operates today. Uh, can you please define it in your own words and tell us how people can see it operating day to day, why you think it's important to have this definition and how it works uh, in our work field today? I would define workism as a phenomenon that is especially concentrated among the upper middle and upper classes, where among a group that tends to see religiosity decline, they tend to be less religious in terms of their belief in an exterior God, tend to look to work to do the job that we've historically associated with an organized religion. For many centuries, millennia, we have looked to organized religion to provide community, to define our weak, to define ourselves, to create a sense of transcendence and self-actualization, meaning purpose, and that increasingly today, Many people among this middle, upper, and upper class look to work to do this. Their desks have become their altars. And I think there are some ways in which workism reflects positive trends, that there are jobs today that are just a lot more fun than the typical jobs of, say, 150 years ago. You and I are talking on the radio about the nature of life. That is a lot more fun than having to be a factory worker in Manchester, England at the dawn of the Industrial Revolution. That's much more fun than being a subsistence farmer uh, whose life and whose family's life could be wiped out by a drought or a frost. But I also think that as we wrap up our sense of identity and work, we might be incurring some dark trade-offs. We might be praying to a God that wants to fire us, that doesn't think of us as having any value outside of a capitalist system. And so throughout this book, I try to be very fair about the idea that workism is this fascinating phenomenon and it has some positive and some negative aspects. One, it is absolutely fun to be talking with you on the radio. So I'll grant you that <laughs> one. But as we explore this idea of workism, and you mentioned it yourself, maybe it's not completely all bad, though you do mention there are negative aspects of it. So to the extent that uh, this workism, as people are getting less religious, is filling up some other need or for identity in our lives. What alternatives would you posit could work for people if workism has its negatives? What would you say should fill that gap? 
Right. Uh, I think I quote uh, the great late writer Dave Foster Wallace, who said that if you take God off the top of the pedestal, people will still worship something, right? Something else has to go there. And actually, that's a very old idea. Um, when uh, the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche said God is dead 100, what, 40 years ago, he said, God is dead, and that's going to create a problem for us because we're going to have to fill our lives with a new kind of meaning. So where might it come from? Well, it might come from community. It might come from leisure and hobbies. It might come from friends and family. It might come from our children or looking after our parents. The thing that defines us, the thing that is the answer to the question, what's your name? And what do you do, right? That second fundamental question in meeting someone, what do you do, who are you? For a lot of people today, I think that they, they look to work as the default definition of who they are. And I think there are other choices. I think it's possible to define ourselves by a whole host of relationships to the world outside of our work. And one of the challenges for me as someone who really does love his job uh, and could theoretically do this job, which is just writing articles and making podcasts and I guess compiling anthologies and books, I could work 100 hours a week easily. I mean, I could just continue to fill my time by sitting at my computer or even somewhat more nefariously, when I'm spending time with my wife or my family or my friends, thinking about my work, not being fully present, still working in my mind, even as I'm surrounded by my friends. I think that we can make different choices. We can choose to prioritize different things and bound work in schedules, um, make jobs that could be, you know, nine to nine jobs, nine to five jobs, and fill the rest of the time by fully plunging ourselves into our, uh, into our hobbies and our friends and our communities, et cetera. We're speaking with Derek Thompson, staff writer at The Atlantic and author of the Work in Progress newsletter. He's also recently published a collection of articles in a book titled On Work, Money, Meaning and Identity. And I like that you brought uh, up that last bit of information, especially because when I'm talking to people, I kind of bristle sometimes when they say, uh, what's your name? What do you do? Like that defines mm -hmm. me. It does make me bristle a little, little bit. However, I also think, especially broadcasting here to you from Detroit, it's real easy for some people in certain classes who are like, hey, no matter what happens, I'm probably going to be okay financially uh, to have this kind of higher-minded idea of workism versus the folks who sometimes maybe they're thinking of things this way or kind of they have to to get by, try to get ahead. The people who are on the grind, single parents out there, uh, folks who are barely trying to make ends meet. Does this idea of workism and maybe getting anything out more, how does it operate for folks who maybe don't have enough time just sit around thinking about things and drinking coffee yeah i'm so glad you asked this question and it's such an important question i think it's something that some people misunderstood from my original essay on workism or maybe i just miscommunicated it so let me say two things one there are lots of people for whom a job is just a job and that's okay i'm certainly not judging it but I am pointing out that for many people, especially the elite in the West, in America and Europe, and certainly in places like Japan and South Korea, work has a, plays a role that is quasi-religious. And you can see this sometimes when you look at polling. You ask people, say, with Pew polling or Gallup polling, what's the most important value for your child? Well, very recently, they, they did this. And what finished higher than tolerance, community, marriage, having children, even making money, it was working hard and enjoying what you do. 
So even in these surveys, we find exactly what I would consider to be the primary definition of workism, the idea that hard work and liking your job isn't just one of many important values to be included in a portfolio of values, it is the cardinal value, it is the Zeus value. That is really, I think, a remarkable thing that is worthy of our attention. The second point to make, though, is that American public policy I think is infused with workism. What does that mean? Well, think about the way that we try to make, to correct income inequality in this country. Well, we have this thing, the earned income tax credit, which might be one of the most important anti-poverty uh, policies in the country. You have to work to qualify for the EITC, the Earned Income Tax Credit. Does this country offer parental leave? No. Does this country offer national paid leave? No. We are one of the few countries to not offer these things at a federal or national level. And in fact, most of our anti-poverty programs flow through work. We want to make sure that people are above all attached to the workforce. So I would argue that even people who aren't individual workers are still playing inside of a system, a kind of you know civic game that was designed by workist elites. Mm, yeah, to break the system up, you'd have to just kind of reframe everybody's understanding and interaction with work, uh, which is really interesting. And considering and looking at your series or, of articles or your collection and just speaking with you now, it's obvious you've been sp thinking about workism for a long time. So as someone who's thought about it more, and this is introduced to new people listening now, how has your study of work changed the way that you interact with your work? It's a wonderful question. And I think the answer to it is that understanding that I myself am a workist has made it easier for me to put up a wall between my work identity and my other identities. So one of the things that I caught in myself, especially when there's a project or something that I'm working on, you know, it's a, a book, an article, a podcast, it's really consuming me, is that it sometimes makes it harder for me to be present with my family or with my friends. I'll be at someone's house or I'll be in the kitchen making dinner with my wife. And outwardly, I'll be in the world of life and not work. But inwardly, the self-talk in my head, the words happening between my ears, my thoughts and even my mental images will all be about my job. I'll be Looks like we might have lost Derek Thompson. You're listening to 1019 WDET. I'm Nick Austin here filling in for Stephen Henderson. And as we unpack the ideas of work, how our relationship as a society interacts with work, we also want to hear from you. 313-577-1019. Again, the phone number here, 313-577-1019. Do you enjoy your work or do you prefer to work as little as possible? And do you find meaning in your work or is it simply a means for an end to you? What do you think of this concept of workism? Do you think it has a positive effect on us uh, together as a society? Or do you think that it is overall a negative for us to be worried so much about work? Is work filling a gap in some of our lives? We want to hear from you. 313-577-1019. Again, the phone number here is 313 
877-577-1019. In fact, we're going to dive a lot into the world of work today as we have, like I mentioned for you a little bit later, we're going to take a look at what's been going on over in the University of Michigan, why grad students there are on strike. That's going to be pretty interesting uh, to get into. But right now, we want to return back to our guest. Uh, how are you doing there? Looks like we lost you a little bit, but uh, I got you back right now. Is that right, Jonathan? Yeah, I'm right here. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you just okay, great. You know? yeah, all right, good. Yeah, I, I believe I was in the process of explaining to you how I sometimes struggle to get away from work, and uh, as if it was uh, you know, motivated by an evil spirit, my work computer literally shut down. <laughs> I was talking about the challenge of sometimes getting away from work. So um, maybe I should talk a little bit more subtly and surreptitiously to uh, trick this um, this this thinking machine. Uh, Open AI Chat GPT, Derek. It's listening. Exactly right. Go I ahead. Know it is listening. But in any case, just to, just to round out your very good question, you know, I, I've tried to be a little bit more pers- purposeful about um, you know m- mentally and, and cognitively uh, being with people um, fully and making you know circumscribing work so that I work harder during the workday and uh, you know sort of play harder um, or play more fully. Um, during my leisure time. And just one, one more piece about that, because it, it, this is another essay in the collection. I, I've written that work and leisure today are both leakier than they used to be. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is that when we're on our computers working, we can also be looking at YouTube. But also when we're hanging out on a Saturday afternoon watching TV or a movie, we can, all, we can be emailing. And so our work time can be more leisure-filled, and our leisure time can be more work-filled. And I do think that this is a problem of workism, because it means that we can never, sometimes we always feel somewhat sucked out of the thing that we want to be doing. We're a little bit sucked out of work as we're working, and we're a little bit sucked out of our leisure time when we're in leisure. And I do think that is an important problem to be solved. Yeah, well, I don't want to selfishly keep you to myself, so let's see if we can fit in one call with your time, as I know you got to bounce on us a little uh, in a little bit. But Mike in Belleville, go ahead. You're on Detroit today. Hey, good morning, uh, guys. Thanks uh, for the call, for taking my call, rather, and very interesting topic. I think overall work can have a negative impact on people as it, it's, it's, it can be stressful. And even outside of work, people are still stressed and worried about, you know, getting assignments done and such. Uh, and even just in planning, and think about it, in America, we work, what, 40 hours a week plus, generally. So it takes up a lot of time, a lot of time away from family and from leisurely activity. So overall, it could have a, a, a toll on people, I think. Yeah, I love that point. I give it to you, Jonathan. What is your response to Mike in Belleville? Well, you know, I think that it's, um, it's important to say that Americans actually overall do work less than they used to. We work less than we used to, and... We should work even less than we do now. Uh, I am not one of these people who's afraid of technology and afraid of productivity. I think that we want to use technology to become more productive so that we can, in an organized way, reduce the amount of time that we have to work. People used to work a six- or seven-day week. Then we had a law passed about 100 years ago that circumscribed that to a five-day week. I would love to dream about a four-day week. I would, you know, sometimes people say, you know, if, if AI starts replacing jobs, you talked about ChatGPT, if AI and automation start replacing jobs, we have, you know, 25% unemployment, while a lot of other people will be working 80-hour weeks. I would much prefer to spread out those weeks so that we re- continue to have unemployment at 3 or 4%. Um, but with unemployment at 3 or 4%, the average person is only working maybe 30 hours a week. That, that's much more in line with my kind of utopia. 
Yeah, and you know, thank you so much again, Mike and Belleville, for your call. Jonathan, before we let you go, we got one more call I really want to get on with you. Frank in Detroit. Go ahead. You're on Detroit today. Hey, how you guys doing this morning? Go ahead. Go on in with your comment, Frank. Hey, um, I just want to say, like I tell my own children, work is work. And the thing is, is work can be meditative or it can be destructive. Now, I got no problem with technology, whether you're making the cotton gin or creating a microchip. But if the work is productive and you can say to yourself, job well done, then you're not going to have any particular issues. But if you're doing work and it's not in a the right mental set, you're going to have problems, man. You're going to have simple problems. You may have some health problem. You may have some mental issue. But if your work is not done properly and done conducive for humanity, that's the issue. That's very thoughtful, Frank, in Detroit. Thank you for calling with that. Derek, I'm going to give you the last word on that one. What's your response? I agree that, you know, technology is mercenary. Uh, the cotton gin or the microchip, these are tools that were used to do terrible things, whether it was, whether it's, you know, uh, prolong slavery or uh, create disinformation and, uh, you know, control bombs that kill civilians. Um, but also these technologies made millions of people uh, richer, gave millions of people, billions of people easier lives and allowed them to accomplish things that were impossible without the technology. So, yeah, I, I love the, the caller's perspective and agree that technology is fundamentally mercenary. Uh, it, it doesn't, technology doesn't want anything. It is always a human tool, and it is up to us how we use it. Yeah, yeah. Thank you again, Frank, for calling. And Derek, I got to say, I, you're making me think of John Cain's, hopefully, this iteration of futurism, chat GPT. Maybe we can get that 15-hour work week. We could all just work less and let the machines it. do a little bit more. But I know you got to get out of here. So Derek Thompson, staff writer at The Atlantic, thanks for joining us on Detroit Today. Thank you. When we return, we're going to break down where the labor movement is in America right now with strikes and uh, union organizing happening with Starbucks, Amazon, and so many other places. What does it mean for us in 2023? We'll check in with Merrick Masters and you when Detroit Today continues. WDET is your place for open dialogue. The music you love. Real news and in-depth analysis. And cultural experiences. The sound of Detroit. 1019 WDET is your public radio station. Today on 1019 WDET, I'm Nick Austin filling in for Stephen Henderson as we take a look at what work means for all of us here in America in 2023. In fact, a year ago, labor supporters were thrilled when Amazon and Starbucks workers created unions out of their respective warehouses and stores. At that time, a declining labor movement looked on with renewed hope, believing that maybe the future would be different and more optimistic. This seemed particularly true, as Generation Z is the most pro-union generation right now in America. And while there's still excitement and energy in today's labor movement, there haven't been a lot of wins. I'm talking specifically about achieving new bargain contracts for unionized workers. To talk about what's happening with Starbucks and Amazon workers, what's going on in the world of labor, and why unions so frequently struggle, we have Merrick Masters here with us. 
Merrick Masters is the chair of the Department of Finance at Wayne State University and a professor of management and adjunct professor of political science. He is also an expert on organized labor. Professor Masters, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Always great having you, especially when we want to take a look at the broad strokes of where labor is. And so we want to check in on where we're at right now broadly with the movement. There had been a lot of activity, as we mentioned, with Amazon and Starbucks workers. Um, What are the numbers in terms of union creation this year and how is the trend moving? Well, let's take the broad strokes first and then get down to Amazon and Starbucks. Um, This year, 2023, uh, the labor movement is about 10% of the workforce, 6% of the private sector workforce. Labor has continually gone down as a percentage since the early 1950s. There hasn't been much change in that or any indication of a reversal of that trend. Uh, With respect to the situation at Amazon and Starbucks, they both received a lot of attention. Amazon as a result of its win at Staten Island a couple of years ago and Starbucks because of a flurry of activity across the United States which has amounted to about 491 um, elections and with um, Starbucks organizing approximately 8,000 workers as a result of those elections. Looking at 2023, what's happened, um, the trend in the number of petitions filed to hold elections for union representation has held more or less steady at a higher level than it has been in the most recent past, but not at a historically high level. It's at a historically low level, in fact. Um, So you're not gonna see much growth there. And I I took a look at the numbers this year, 2023, and there have been 39 petitions filed for elections by Starbucks. None have been filed by um, unions trying to organize Amazon. So it takes longer because Amazon facilities are larger and more um, difficult to organize than the Starbucks facilities, which are organized on a site-by-site basis and typically involve just a handful of employees. And um, they've been more successful in mobilizing petitions. But for example, the unit that was organized at Staten Island, they had 8,000 employees. It takes a long time to organize that kind of a facility compared to a, you know, a Starbucks in Ann Arbor that may have 15 to 20 people. Yeah, and even when you get organized, uh, what we want to find out is what does it actually mean ultimately? In fact, right now, I want to play a cut of Senator Bernie Sanders interviewing Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz in a congressional hearing that occurred on March 29th. Under your leadership, Starbucks has repeatedly refused to bargain with any of the 7,000 workers in nearly 300 stores where workers have voted to represent themselves through union. The first group of workers to win their election have been waiting more than 460 days to reach a first contract. Will you make a promise to this committee that you will exchange proposals with the union so that we can begin to make meaningful progress? On a single store basis, we will continue to negotiate in good faith. That's what we'll do. Creating a union, as you mentioned, uh, Professor Masters, is hard enough, but companies can often delay contract negotiations with unions 
potentially indefinitely. Uh, so is this, in fact, the biggest obstacle to success in unions in the U.S. from your aspect? It, Go ahead. It is a major obstacle, and there is legislation before Congress to change that. But I would say to add a little bit of balance to the situation, and this isn't to criticize the workers or the unions that represent them, it's just to acknowledge a reality in that when you organize, particularly if you're part of a newfound organization within a unit of 15 employees, you face the question of how do you develop a comprehensive proposal for a new collective bargaining contract? That's not just something that is handed to you on a platter and you say, here are our demands. You've got to present your, your proposals thoughtfully. You've got to think about the consequences of them and the feasibility of attaining them. So there's a lot of legwork, so to speak, that goes into doing that. And I think in some cases, unions are really not prepared for it. And so the, the company may sit there and wait for proposals. And yes, it is true. And companies are, are, are not necessarily in any hurry because if you don't have, if you're not bargaining, things stay the same. And, you know, it's, it's very conceivable that over a period of time, if there's not much movement towards a collective bargaining agreement, the union will just fade away. Uh, the people that were initially organizing it, pushing it, particularly in small units like at Starbucks, may move on to other places. And then you really have nobody left behind that wants to push for a collective bargaining agreement. So the parties really, it's, it's on the onus of both sets of parties to live up to their responsibilities, but it is a challenging task. Yeah. Um, and unions need to be much more, I think, thoughtful when they organize about how they translate that into collective bargaining agreements. Yeah, Merrick, as you mentioned, just because you get the union done, that's not when the job is over. A lot of people might have an idea of what the union can do, but there's still a lot of legwork to be done uh, in mobilization to actually get some things through. But we're talking about the obstacle of actually forcing people to the table. You mentioned some potential legislation to make sure companies and business uh, come to the table and can't just wait it out. If companies were forced to make an agreement at the bargaining table within a certain time period, how would you see that? Or how do you feel that would change the well, nature of I would like Go ahead. To see something. I would like to see something along the lines that has been proposed in what's called the PRO Act, the, the, the legislation to make it easier to organize and to consummate these initial bargaining contracts. And I would like to see the parties, if, if management, for example, doesn't sit down and negotiate that within a certain period of time, whether it's six months or a year, that um, the union representatives have a right to say, we want to take it to arbitration mm -hmm. and the arbitrators can decide whether or not you accept our proposal or the company's proposal. And, you know, if the company doesn't submit one, then they accept the um, union's proposal. And so it's in the best interest of both parties to present a reasonable proposal. I think there has to be some sort of a trigger that forces the parties to negotiate. Otherwise, it is too easy for companies to really to weigh down uh, the employer. And I think, you know, it's very interesting, you know, Starbucks is sort of touted as this uh, socially responsible, very forward looking company, but it's as anti-union as any other company. 
Uh, and um, they do not welcome unions with open arms. Um, their CEO, their previous CEO went around the country basically saying they don't need a union, that they prefer to deal directly with their employees. Um, and I think that we find that across the board that there's very little uh, receptivity on the part of employers to unions. And it's very difficult, even if you can get organized, to then make that next step, and that's get a collective bargaining agreement and actually implement it. We're speaking with Merrick Masters, chair of the Department of Finance at Wayne State University and a professor of management and adjunct professor of political science, also an expert in organized labor. But we also want to speak with you, get an idea of what you're thinking about right now in terms of the modern labor movement. Are you in a union now or are you trying to create one? What are the challenges and benefits that you see in unions? And what do you hope to accomplish through your union? Do you have questions about unions generally, collective bargaining between businesses, companies, as well as their employees? Now would be a good time to call. 313-577-1019. Again, that's 313-577-1019. And we can work you into the conversation. Merrick Masters, I think one thing that we think about here a lot of times, uh, we're looking at what happens in America, not necessarily taking into account things that happen internationally. Are there any tricks of the trade or any new ideas, any things that we've seen overseas and other countries that you think might be applicable or we could learn in terms of our labor movements here, uh, both through business as well as through employees in America? Well, I think one of the important things for us to keep an open mind about is that there are different models of industrial relations, different ways of having union representation. And we tend to have a one size fits all approach here which is collective bargaining, you win a certification election, and then the union is recognized, and then you have to negotiate the first contract. If you had different approaches that made it easier to organize, uh, that encouraged employers to voluntarily recognize unions through card checks or whatever other kind of device that is available, you might see a significant increase in the level of union representation. There have been various surveys which have been done um, it, that show that in the U.S., um, uh, a much larger percentage of workers would like union representation than actually have it. It's just that our model in the U.S. Uh, of organizing is very difficult, very legalistic, very cumbersome, and very adversarial. Other societies have a different kind of an approach where they make it easier to organize and employers are <clears throat> have greater societal pressures to recognize unions and to bargain on an industry-wide basis than they do in the United States. That would help move things in that direction. I really think it's important for people to think about you know, the consequences of not having a strong union. Um, we don't have a strong union in the United States today, and in many other societies, this is not just a U.S. phenomenon, it's a global phenomenon about the decline of unions. But um, compared to the 1950s, uh, since that time period, we've seen wage inequality grow, we've seen wealth inequality grow. All of those things are partly a function of the decline in unions and the power of workers to negotiate better pay and better benefits. And when you have a, such a concentration of wealth, um, you need some sort of offsetting countervailing power. 
And we don't really have that present um, in the United States. And that's why we have such tremendous differences now between the pay of those at the highest economic part of the rung uh, and, and those at the lowest levels. Um, and if we don't really do something about that, I think we're going to have a society that increasingly is made up of a few people who have most of the wealth and the rest of it who have a very, very uh, small portion of it. Mm. Mm. We're speaking with Wayne State University professor Merrick Masters, but we want to work you into the conversation right now, and we'll do so starting with Mike in Windsor. Mike, go ahead. You're on Detroit Today. Hey there. Thanks for having me on. Um, my, my comment, and I guess it kind of leads into a question, was uh, I, I like to think of myself as fairly informed, but a lot of what you're talking about today is, is very educational to me. I'm, I'm kind of surprised at how little I know about the mechanical process of unionization and, and organized labor. And I think that's probably a major impediment uh, for a lot of people. And, um, you know, I, I guess it probably falls to the, to the labor union and the organization itself to educate people on that. And I think if people are, are maybe more aware, they might push for uh, reforms in, in legislation that, that make it a, a more transparent and a, and a clearer process. Um, you know, and the last little thing I'll say is that just your, your uh, most recent comment about uh, the, the greater division of wealth in, in the, uh, the recent past, you know, that's something that we're seeing, that's something that continues to accelerate. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'd like to think with all of these massive strides in, in uh, you know, productivity and in increasing um, uh, profit, maybe, maybe there is a little bit more to go around so that people aren't struggling. I'm kind of, you know, I know I'm a little bit all over the place, but I'm wondering how we can uh, streamline the process. Yeah, you know, Mike, go ahead. Go ahead, Professor. Well, I was going to say that I think that's an excellent point. Um, It is, um, you know, the devil's in the detail when it comes to organizing. Uh, And you have to attain legal recognition in order to have the right to bargain collectively. Otherwise, the employer can just say, well, you know, you've got a union that's come in and said they want to represent you, but but I'm not going to recognize that union until you win a certification election. And if an employer says that, then the union has to go out and win that certification election. And then it can come to the bargaining table and the employer can say, okay, put your demands on the table. It can wait for you to do so. And then it can say, uh, I find your demands unacceptable. And uh, we're going to come up with our own counter demands, which may or may not be reasonable. And you say no to that. And then you can find yourself in a situation a year, two or three years from there without a contract. And so therefore, you've had a certification election, which is a Herculean task to begin with. And then three years later, you find yourself without a contract. And so what's the benefit of having a union? And some workers are going to say, throw up their hands and say, uh, it's not worth it. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's the situation that we're in. And I also think there's another uh, twist to this that I think is very important is that, you know, in one of my uh, pursuits in life, I've been a management consultant. And I've, I have rarely, rarely seen anybody in management at a high level in the United States welcome a union. And that includes companies that are unionized. 
they will deal with the union, they will tolerate the union if they have to, but they would prefer if you ask them and you put them under true serum, they would prefer not to have a union. Um, and if I wanted to make certain that a union didn't get in my workplace and I were a hard-headed employer, there are lots of things I could do to make it very hard for that union to organize and to try and convince people that it's not in their interest to do so. And I would simply say, you know, we, we you can have a union, but let's look at the consequences of having a union. Um, you know, I might, for example, point out a fact and say in 1979, there were 450,000 auto workers represented by the UAW associated with General Motors. Now, how many are there today? Maybe 60,000, 50,000? And I would say, well, you know, I'm just advocating the way a management person that wanted to resist a union would advocate, not reflecting my own personal views, but I would say, you know, it doesn't do much, it doesn't do you much good to have a union, does it? Yeah, now I can understand that perspective. I also wonder how much of the fiduciary duty really plays into that, where corporations fit into our society. Maybe a question for another time. No question, though, Mike. We appreciate your call in Windsor, as that was really helpful. I think we got time for one more. I want to bring in Melissa in Metro Detroit. Melissa, go ahead. You're on Detroit today. Uh, hi, Nick, uh, and uh, hello to your guests. All right, so I read recently that unions help keep inflation down because when inflation rises a lot, the union will go to the business and say, well, we need higher wages to, to deal with the higher inflation. So I wondered if your guests could comment on that. I wonder as well. What you got for us, Merrick? Well, um, historically what they've done, although there's been less of this than there has been, um, <clears throat> they have um, tied wages, wage increases to the cost of living. So they'll negotiate a contract, for example, that says over three years, you'll get a 9% wage increase, for example, and then you will get a cost of living allowance increase that goes with it that is tagged to the consumer price index or some other index. And in the past year, what we've seen in terms of what's happened in the consumer price index and wages, the CPI has gone up 5%, wages have gone up on average 4.2%, which means that workers in real dollars are losing. And most workers aren't covered by cost of living uh, provisions. It's a big issue in the auto industry now. It hasn't been a big issue recently because inflation has been so low. But as inflation has picked up, um, people are going to become more concerned about having some sort of ongoing way of keeping up with inflation so that their wages don't fall behind. Well, thank you again, Melissa in Metro Detroit. We got time to sneak in one more call. You got about 30 seconds, but go ahead, Devin in Detroit. You're on Detroit today. Devin, please turn your radio down. Go ahead. You're on Detroit today. You there, Devin? All right, I guess we're not going to be able to take them, but I want to say, Professor Masters, uh, thank you so much for, oops, actually, that's my fault. Derek in uh, Detroit, go ahead. You're on Detroit today. Now you're on. Hey, how you doing? I just want to say, I don't think there's enough jobs, you know, out there in these cities where they make enough money to make unions. Um, I don't know if the unions are just here to help us gain more money or if they're not, but these cities don't make enough money to make their unions, and I don't think that's, I don't think that's really safe. 
Merrick Masters, I'm going to give you the last word. Thanks again for calling there, Derek, in Detroit. Well, I think that's an important point. I mean, you know, I think that we have to look at ways to raise wages so that um, um, people don't have to, you know, think in terms of um, my wage is so low, I can't afford to have a union, and therefore I'm not going to have a union, and therefore I'm not going to have the power to increase my wages. That sort of becomes a a, a vicious circle in which everything races to the bottom, mm. unfortunately. Yeah. Merrick Mars- Masters, again, chair of the Department of Finance at Wayne State University. Thanks for joining us again on Detroit Today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. When we return, we're going to take a look at the labor dispute happening at U of M, the University of Michigan, and their graduate students. Keep it locked right here as Detroit Today continues in just a moment. Detroit today on 1019 WDET. I'm Nick Austin filling in for Stephen Henderson. And in late March, the University of Michigan Ann Arbor graduates went on strike seeking a livable wage of at least $38,500 a year, among other demands. In addition to learning and earning higher degrees, graduate students do a lot for the university, including help teach students, lead seminars, grade papers, and often conduct research alongside tenured professors. The union's graduate employees organization recently had a big win, and the University of Michigan did not win an injunction that they requested in the court, claiming the union strike was illegal because it breached their contract. To talk about this recent win for the graduate student union, the union's demands, how the union wants the university to change, as well as why they are on strike in the first place, we have uh, the graduate employees organization president, Jared Eno, here with us. Jared, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks, Nick. It's great to be here. So what are the specific list of demands that you have for the University of Michigan in addition to higher pay? And why do you think, uh, why was now the time for you to go on strike for these things? Yeah. Uh, grad workers are on the strike right now because we know that there, a better campus is possible here at the University of Michigan. The theme for our campaign is affordability and dignity for all grad workers. And as you said, uh, that includes a living wage, um, 38.5. That number comes from the MIT Living Wage Calculator. So as your previous guest, uh, Professor Masters, was saying, we're just trying to peg uh, our pay to inflation and the local cost of living. Um, you know, as we all know, the cost of living is kind of out of control across the country, and Ann Arbor is no exception. The gap between what we are paid and the local cost of living has tripled during the current life of our contract, which is the last three years. And it now stands at uh, $14,500, which effectively means that um, grad school is impossible here at the University of Michigan for anyone who doesn't have family wealth. And we don't think that that's right. I want to so get... We're asking for... Go ahead. Oh, so go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. Finish it off. Okay. Uh, we're asking for a living wage. You know, there are different groups that uh, face additional costs that's parents, international workers, disabled workers. So we're asking for, uh, you know, an accessible childcare subsidy, an emergency fund for international workers, and copay caps to make sure that disabled workers don't go bankrupt. Um, in addition, the university has uh, these 
900 hours of required field placements for folks in this MSW program, the number one program in the country, but those hours are all unpaid. Um, so we're asking for a minimum wage of $20 an hour for those folks. All right. And I do want to jump in here right now real quick, just because, uh, and again, I appreciate you being on, Jared. You know, we did reach mm-hmm. out to the university and, resp- and in response to your demands, Rick Fitzgerald, university spokesperson, says, instead of working toward real compromise, the Graduate Employees Organization has refused to move from its insistence on a 60% raise, a compensation demand that is vastly out of step with wage increases for all other employee groups, and instead opted to violate its own contract and state law and walk off the job. Jared, I want to give you an opportunity to respond to this. How do you respond to that statement from the university? Sure. Yeah, the university is really fixated on this 60% figure. Um, the percentage raised is large because we are paid so poorly. <laughs> um, the, the university doesn't seem to understand that uh, workers should be paid a living wage. And uh, that's, that's what we're fighting for. And the really confusing thing about this is actually uh, the university, a different part of the university, recently said that it was going to pay PhD students, some PhD students, pretty close to a living wage. So at this point, the university itself is saying that uh, grad workers should get a living wage, while at the bargaining table is saying that it's outrageous. It just doesn't make any sense. Um, so uh, that line doesn't doesn't really add up for grad workers who are selling their plasma, you know, skipping meals, rationing medication. For the university to say that it's a, a nonsensical wage demand just makes no sense for the daily lives of grad workers. And I think that folks, you know, our students who are coming out to support us, faculty, librarians, nurses, the community has really come out uh, because everyone knows you need to be able to pay the bills to live. One of the things that you even acknowledged in, in a little bit earlier talking to us is rising costs, especially in Ann Arbor, where we know things are really going up. Housing costs, for example, are incredibly high there. And that's not necessarily the, the fault of the university. That's just the life that you lead in there. What would you say to people who say that you are tagging on the university a responsibility that comes from outside driving those costs and expenses up so much? Sure, it's a great question. I mean, the university is the largest employer in Ann Arbor. So what the university does and how it approaches its business model uh, has everything to do with the local cost of living here in Ann Arbor. Um, so even the university has, has not tried to say that this is out of its control. And even if it did, it wouldn't make a lot of sense because the university, as uh, folks probably know, has an endowment of 17 plus billion dollars. Um, you know, our wage ask, because again, we are, we're not paid much and we're only asking for a living wage. Our wage ask would only cost about $33 million uh, in the first year. That's, a drop in the bucket for the University of Michigan, and it is uh, it would only bring the university up into a realm of uh, grad compensation that's competitive with peer institutions. You know, other universities that the University of Michigan itself thinks it's competing with. Rutgers University, those folks just went on strike, um, paused their strike because they got a 33% wage increase for grad workers going up to $40,000. 
Um, now, the Rutgers has an endowment of like two, two and a half billion dollars. The University of Michigan, again, has an endowment of over 17 billion. So this yeah. is entirely possible. Mm. It makes every bit of sense for grad workers and for the university itself. Jared Eno, graduate student at the University of Michigan, president of the Graduate Employees Organization. Thanks so much for joining us on Detroit Today. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. You're listening to 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. Stephen Henderson will be back and see you tomorrow.